Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Thanks for listening. I've uh, I've got a special guest here today, somebody who uh, has been um, one of my favorite reads for many years now. Um, Daniel Harrigus uh, is here joining us, and uh, Daniel, it's uh, it's great to see you. Great to be here, Kevin. Thank you. Um, we're going to talk a lot about housing today. And, uh, it's, uh, housing itself is obviously, um, is probably one of the most, been one of the most talked about topics nationally inside the urban planning and development world and outside the, that world as well, probably for at least a decade, uh, as housing costs have really exploded in a, in a lot of places in the country. So, uh, it's a very, very common, uh, conversation piece, uh, and uh, a lot of it is often frustrating and confusing to talk about. Uh, so uh, into this, uh, Daniel Steps, uh, he's actually been writing about this for some time on the Strong Towns uh, website uh, and writing really great pieces. And now he is the co-author uh, of a new book with Chuck Marone called Escaping the Housing Trap, uh, which comes out. When does it come out, Daniel? Uh, April, April 23rd. April 23rd. Okay. Um, so, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Uh, I think Daniel and I have probably, uh, uh, learned from each other, uh, quite a bit, uh, in things that we've talked about and written about. And so I'm really, um, I'm excited to have this conversation and, and kind of dive deeper uh, a little bit into uh, the, the general topic of housing and his perspective and the, and the book's perspective on it. So Daniel was kind enough to share with me uh, a little bit of the introduction, uh, and I, I say that just because I've I marked a few notes to, to help me direct the conversation a little bit. Uh, housing is so broad uh, as a topic. There's about a thousand different places you can go, uh, and I really like how you laid it out here uh, in the beginning. But I do want to start with just kind of one piece that I think is is really fundamental um, that I that I just highlighted here a couple sentences. Um, and, and I know probably for Strong Towns readers, this will sound familiar, uh, but I, I, I just think it's important to emphasize this and, and repeat it because, and have you expand on it. Um, but you talk about um, central to this approach is that recognition that cities are complex systems. They're shaped by countless decisions made by millions of individuals over time with interconnections that are challenging to trace or fully grasp. When attempts are made to simplify or ignore this inherent complexity in organizing urban life, challenges and disruptions arise. Uh, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that and how, why do you think that's so fundamental to this conversation? Yeah, well, it's something that's been, it's been fundamental to the Strong Towns conversation for a long time, um, as I think anybody who's read the blog and is familiar with our work knows. Um, and I do think it's central to, to grasping what's really gone wrong um, you know, it's, um, it's funny. I, I would talk to people casually, you know, old friends and stuff in the process of writing this book and they'd say, well, what's new in your life? And I'd say, well, I'm co-writing this book with my boss and, um, it's about the housing crisis and an old high school friend of mine, I remember I'm sitting down for coffee with him and I said, I'm writing a book about the housing crisis. And he goes, oh, cool. Wait, which one? Um, <laughs> I've never talked to anybody who like, I say housing crisis and they scoff at the idea like, oh no, there isn't a housing crisis. Um, yeah. But people's understandings of what that means are incredibly varied um, because of exactly what you're saying and what you pulled out of the intro to the book, um, that what 
really we try to um, to organize the narrative around in this book is we have this massive paradigm shift um, in the 20th century um, in how we house ourselves as a society in the U.S. Um, and to a lesser extent, you know, Canada, I think throughout the Anglosphere, you can see commonalities, but um, we have this massive paradigm shift alongside sort of the broader, the broader paradigm shift that we've talked about as the suburban experiment at Strong Towns, um, starting in the mid 20th century and really upending the way we finance housing and all sorts of urban development, the way we finance it, the way we plan it and regulate it, um, and our cultural assumptions about it. Um, and what that really amounts to at the core of that paradigm shift is this very modernist, this very 20th century idea that we can solve, we can permanently solve the messiness of the city, um, that we can permanently solve these tensions that exist around, well, how is your neighborhood going to change and evolve? Are you going to be uncomfortable with that change? Are people going to be displaced? Is the character going to change? How are you going to finance housing? Is it going to be a struggle? Are you going to have to make sacrifices? Um, this idea emerges for a number of reasons that we can we can delve deeper into that, well, we can solve all these problems now. In a modern, prosperous society, we're going to have mass middle-class prosperity. We're going to have mass homeownership. Um, it's going to be an economic engine. It's going to be the, the foundation of everything good in society. We're going to build, we're going to plan neighborhoods that are better than the places people have lived in the past. It's all going to be scientific and orderly and optimized. And through that, we can deliver um, kind of a permanently prosperous society. Um, and this is the vision that emerges through the 1930s into the, the middle of the century. And looking back now, decades later, we can really see the cracks in that vision. And those cracks look like a whole bunch of different things breaking. Um, and, you know, to most people, housing crisis means the affordability crisis, um, which is especially acute in certain kind of high cost regions of the country. Um, so a lot of the discourse around, quote unquote, the housing crisis initially starts to come out of places like New York City, like San Francisco, like Boston. And it's all about, well, nobody can afford the rent anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But we paint, I think, a picture of it that's inclusive of that, but broader than that, because there are all sorts of ways in which housing is just broken. We're not building the right kinds of housing for people's needs. We're not building it in the right places. A lot of people are squeezed. They're overly indebted. They're making huge sacrifices in terms of how they live their life or where they can live their life. Um, we're not happy. We've largely lost faith that the development industry is going to be responsive to community needs and is going to give us products that really amount to the kind of communities we want to live in. Um, mm -hmm. Things are just, they're fundamentally broken in a lot of ways that don't necessarily um, tie up with a bow into a really neat package. Like, well, this is the definition of the housing crisis and this is the thing that's wrong. So um, I think the messy city is a great place to be having this conversation because um, it's kind of a messy book and deliberately so um, because it tries to get at all of these different facets of, well, what is the paradigm that emerged with the suburban experiment? And then what are all these sort of cascading consequences of it that have led to the situation we're in today? So let me let, let me give you some of the, just, just right off the top, let's maybe get the grumpy old man questions out of the way. <laughs> uh, I'll give you some of the grumpy old man questions. Well, uh, so one of them is, well, 
you know, you're mostly talking about uh, cities uh, in certain parts of the country where they just make it really hard to build anything. And that's why housing is so expensive. Uh, and also, you know, when I was uh, a young person, we shared bedrooms. Uh, my starter home was an 800 square foot house and you expect a 2000 or 2400 square foot house. And it's really just expectations have changed. Um, yeah, so that, that that's two great kind of grumpy old man questions to use your, your parlance <laughs> I'm there. good for those. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that um, in terms of sort of the geographic question, um, the loudest voices in the discourse tend to be from these places that are really kind of exceptional, San Francisco, New York. Um, but the sense that there's a housing crisis is much, much broader and more widespread than that. It just manifests a little bit differently. Um, I think that you you hear it and you see it in Kansas City where you are. I mean, I'm certainly aware of some of the stories of, um, you know, some of the tenant activism that has come out of Kansas City, people who really are um, finding their housing situation, the options available to them, finding it to be dire. Um, I think that in every city, there are issues where there, there are these mismatches and these spillovers in terms of where really should we be building housing and what kind of product should we be building versus what are we building? Um, you have you have neighborhoods that are mired in stasis, that are mired in disinvestment for decades. Um, they've got really good bones. They're good places. They have a lot of historic character. They have people who deeply love them, but places that just can't catch a break. Um, at the same time, you've got these building patterns happening maybe out on the suburban fringe that are... I mean, they're financially ruinous, which is a core thing we've talked about at length at Strong Towns. Um, they're producing more liabilities than they are revenue for um, for the communities that they're in. Um, but they're also mismatched with where the demand really is, especially among younger people who want to move into homeownership. So even in a place like Kansas City, where if you look at aggregate like metro area statistics, like housing is a bargain there compared to on the coasts. Um, and even if you look at relative to local wages, which are certainly lower than in a San Francisco or New York, it's still better. It's, you know, home prices in Northern California are 10 times median income where you are, it might be four times. Um, mm -hmm. But there are still people who are stretched and who are squeezed. Um, there are neighborhoods where there is a shortage of decent housing in good condition that, that meets the needs of people there. Um, there's definitely a shortage of walkable urban places. Um, I'm sure that there are places that, that people are getting pushed out of. And then there are, the, there are these mismatches that are really pervasive all over the country from small towns to big to midsize and big metros where, for example, um, one statistic that I find myself repeating a lot, um, and I learned this from Allie Thurmond Quinlan, who I know you know, Kevin, um, mm -hmm. fantastic yeah. incremental developer in Arkansas. Um, she does this great presentation about how two thirds of American households are made up of one or two people. Um, yeah. And yet 88% of the new homes that are built have three bedrooms or more. Um, it's that kind of thing that plays into the housing crisis where like we keep churning out this really, really limited range of products, these monocultures. Um, and often it's, you know, the suburban tract home in a cornfield where the financing is in place, the institutional arrangements are in place. We've made it really, really easy to keep churning that out. Um, but even within a relatively small geography, you can have um, you can have housing shortages in other places. You can have 
real problems with people being able to access close in neighborhoods, close to jobs, close to amenities, or housing that is the right size and configuration for what they actually need where they are in life. Mm-hmm. Let, let's dive into the starter home piece of that a little bit. Cause I, mm-hmm. I just know, I know you've written about that yeah. um, extensively in the past. And you know, I think about like my own situation, my, when I look at the houses, my uh, parents owned when uh, either before I was born or uh, shortly after I was born, they were, uh, they were very modest houses. Uh, I think the, I think when I was born um, in 1969, at that point, when I was born, we had four kids and I think we lived in a three bedroom ranch with a basement in Omaha, uh, a, a pretty small place. Uh, and then we're able to get a little bit bigger place, probably, uh, more like a four bedroom or, or so, but I mean, really for most of my childhood, we shared bedrooms as kids. Uh, and, um, and there's certainly a, I know as a parent today, there's a vastly different expectation on the part of my other parents, on the part of kids, uh, about what constitutes, you know, uh, a, an appropriate house for a family. Right. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and just how that all has changed so much uh, over the years. I think the expectations are in a feedback loop with these other kind of institutional factors that are affecting what what we build and what we don't build and what options are out there. Um, so I, you know, I think I hear what you're saying, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I, I look at my my family. I got two young children, and would sharing a bedroom be the worst thing in the world for them? No. But even when we like when we go on vacation somewhere, or when we go stay with in laws, and there's the prospect that they're going to have to sleep in the same room, it's like, oh god, they won't get any sleep. They'll keep like, but it, it's really <laughs> alien to like what we've assumed is just like the basic like this is how you're supposed to live. As right. a middle class American family, there and I think there has been that shift. Um, I think it's also the case, though, that like the the kind of starter home you're talking about, like you even look at like the old photos of Levittown or you know those early sort of mass production suburbs in the 1950s. Like we're not building those anymore. Houses like yeah. that, um, almost nothing is built that's on that scale. There are institutional factors that play into that. I mean, there are regulatory factors like minimum lot sizes in a lot of communities. There are things that we've done that basically make it uneconomic to build smaller homes on smaller lots. Um, And the, you know, combine that with this cultural expectations question. I think there's a little bit of chicken and egg there. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think though that maybe not in the context of um, you know, families with children specifically, but there is a huge amount of demand out there for, you know, maybe a different version than what you're thinking of in the fifties, the, the leave it to beaver kind of era, but there, there's a huge amount of demand out there for what we might call a starter home today. It just looks different. Um, you know, my wife and I, when we were in our twenties, starting out, not making a lot of money, we didn't own a lot of stuff. We lived in backyard accessory dwelling units, um, backyard cottages behind a larger single family home. Um, and these were all homes that had been built in like the 1930s. So they were kind of grandfathered into a zoning code that doesn't allow them anymore. Um, we were lucky to find these. They were a fantastic. I mean, they were the right sized living arrangement for where we were in life. Um, we weren't ready to be homeowners. Maybe in a different era, we might have been homeowners at that age. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but a very small home for a modest rent, like that was perfect. In in big high cost cities, you see 
there's a lot of push to, can we do more micro apartments? Can we do sort of a modernized version of the single room occupancy where amenities like the kitchen are shared? Um, there is, there is demand out there for this stuff. Um, I think that the new version of it needs to be allowed to evolve. Um, and I think it will, um, yeah, I think I think you could see this even in, when you look to, um, uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot about uh, <laughs> the some of the things that the author Joel Garot wrote years ago. Uh, he wrote a couple of books that I that I really loved, but one of them was called Edge City, uh, and he he came up with this whole notion of the favored quarter that if uh, every metro area has like uh, a quarter, uh, if if it's a pie, there's a quarter of it that uh, just has better uh, demographics, better reputation, whatever than, than the other parts of the metro area. And I, I think if you look in some of those favored quarters that have those uh, subdivisions still from the 1940s and 50s, uh, the very small Cape Cod homes and others that were built in that era, it, it's amazing how you, I, I think it, it validates what you're talking about. There's incredible demand for those. Those areas have really continued to be uh, desirable places to live for young families, uh, even though they're much smaller homes than they might buy on the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the unfavored quarters, you don't see as much of that. Uh, they've had a lot more decline. Um, and that speaks to other factors. But um, there, it, there's clearly this interest and demand still for that people will make that trade off to have a smaller place, uh, you know, yeah. regardless if it's in, a, in an area they want to be in. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that's tough is that that stuff is getting bid up really fast in a lot of cities, um, to the point where it's not really a viable starter home option for a lot of people. I mean, um, you get those old like Cape Cod, you know, those houses, you find them in California now, like you're paying $2 million for one of those. It's valued (laughs) for the land underneath it. And often it's going to be torn down and replaced with a much larger home. Um, but I mean, my wife and I, when we did buy our house in, in Sarasota, Florida, where we lived until... Um, the middle of last year, we, we bought in the neighborhood, like we really prized location. We wanted to be somewhere where she could walk to work, where we only had to own one car, where we were close to downtown, close to walkable parts of the city that we liked. And we bought in the neighborhood that was sort of the last bastion of affordable home ownership in that it is these really modest houses. A lot of them are under a thousand square feet. Um, but the prices have run up like crazy just in the in the seven years since we made that purchase, we couldn't have gone back and bought that house today. Um, the one that we just sold last year. Um, and the notion that like, this is a viable option for working class families. I mean, that's gone. Like it's a working class neighborhood that is transitioning really fast because Mm -hmm. anywhere, like you said, where the location is desirable, when we have an overall scarcity, um, small homes, big homes, it doesn't matter. They're going to be bid up. How how much in your writing or thinking about this uh, has the impact of kind of just shifting demand for like more urban or walkable places? How does that play a role uh, in uh, in in exactly what you talked about there with Sarasota, where uh, you know we had a, a few decades of really going gung ho with uh, building suburbia, uh, and then all of a sudden uh, we've had this major shift in interest and demand in the last couple decades. Uh, on the part of uh, all age groups, but especially younger people. And um, yet those new places haven't built much housing uh, at all. Uh, so I, I, do, 
what do you see? How do you see that? Is that like a major factor in what people are talking about and in, in terms of the pain they're feeling? I think that shift is huge and I think it's underappreciated. Um, I think it's actually hard to quantify because um, you got another kind of chicken and egg thing, right? Where people, I mean, you, you, you hear the contrarians right now. Like there, there are a lot of voices saying there's been this big shift and millennials are much more pro-urban than older generations were. And Gen Z is even more pro-urban than that. People want to live in walkable places, centrally located places. They don't want to do all this driving. Like, and then you see the contrarians come back and say, well, actually millennials are all having kids and buying homes out in the suburbs. And it's kind of like, well, they're, do you know that that's what they want or are they buying where they can afford? Um, and there's probably a bit of both in a lot of cases, but I think that the notion of revealed preference gets really tricky here. Um, yeah. You know, does the fact that, you know, 10,000 more time, 10,000 times more people buy Camrys than Lexuses, does that mean that everybody likes the Camry more as a car? <laughs> like um, that's probably 10,000 is probably not the factor there. I'm positive it's not, but I, I needed a number real quick. Um, but like there's, suppose it revealed preference is going to be shaped by what the market makes available. Um, you know, in Sarasota, there are tons of great kind of single family quote unquote homes that aren't occupied by families. They're occupied by a bunch of 20 something roommates who work in the service industry and they're crowding into a house because that's how they can afford the rent. Um, not, it's not because that's the way those people would prefer. Like that's the ideal living arrangement for people at that stage in life. And in kind of a roommate situation, it's cause that's all that there is. Um, yeah. so I think, yeah, I think that there is evidence of a really profound shift. Um, and where it's showing up is not so much in where people currently live or what they're buying, what they're renting. It shows up to some extent in preference surveys that you'll hear from like the national association of realtors, like, Oh, 42% of Americans would rather have a smaller house in a walkable neighborhood than a larger house in a place they have to drive. Um, but more than that, it's showing up in prices. It's showing up in the way some of these preferred locations are being bid up. Um, despite being older housing, smaller housing, maybe lower quality, you know, you look at like price per square foot and it becomes really obvious that the places where people will pay a premium for less house tend to be walkable, really well-located locations with with access to some urban amenities. Um, yeah. We're just beginning to re-legalize more of that pattern. So there's going to be a big lag in how much of this is actually being built and how are people actually living. Um, one thing we talk about in the book is that I think a bunch of people's assumptions about the housing market were shaped during this really anomalous era, you know, post- post-World War II and, you know, the era of kind of urban decline, where from the 1970s through the 1990s, you had had massive suburban flight out of core cities in almost every metro in America. Um, you had huge amounts of vacant real estate, you know, even in New York, even in Manhattan, you had huge yeah. vacancy rates. Um, and so the city became this place that, you know, if that was when your attitudes were shaped, you thought like, um, well, this is a place, this is affordable. This is where the artists go to, you know, get their cheap studio space. This is, um, where the people who are kind of on the margins of society, this, the city is where they go to live and they live this cool bohemian life. And so the most important policy priority is preventing the decline of these places. Let's do really rigid historic preservation. Let's zone them in Amber. Let's try to protect, um, this environment. Nobody was thinking about, um, large scale gentrification. Nobody was thinking about, people actually being displaced en masse from, from these urban locations. 
that like that wasn't on the radar in the late 20th century. I think there has been an absolute sea change now where in some ways, like the the policies that we established in that era now are really, really biting us because we essentially locked down a bunch of what remained of our pre-suburban kind of built environment. And now there's this massive demand for these places and there's this need to change. And the only lever we have is, um, well, let's pick pockets of it and we'll, let's allow mass scale redevelopment, like giant five over one buildings, you know, this wholesale sort <laughs> yeah. of wiping clean. Um, like we're, we're struggling with, oh, wait a minute now. Now there's actually all this demand for what used to be like sort of the, the fringe oddball bohemian choice. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's funny how that kind of infects people's brains in so many respects. And I, I, I know that cause I, I was, I'm old enough to have lived in uh, my part of the city when it was still um, pretty rough and pretty cheap. Uh, and um, know a lot of people uh, and friends uh, who were older than me in that era who did exactly as you described. They, they were able to buy these incredible historic homes or buildings for next to nothing. And they have, they, they have a vision of the way things were in that era as like they're, they haven't really changed all that much. And, and uh, I've often talked about it. They went from being basically no demand neighborhoods to now a lot of them are high demand, Mm -hmm. but they're still, still kind of using that like no demand thinking uh, about how to solve problems. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just, it's a different world now. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, I want to piggyback a little bit on this. Uh, there's another sentence here, a couple sentences I picked up on that, that you wrote that I'd like to, uh, uh, just kind of talk about, cause I thought this was really insightful. You said, uh, those who set housing policy often do not understand housing finance. Those who focus on finance are often oblivious to the effects of land use policy. These conversations, housing finance and land use policy occur in separate circles and are often insufficiently informed by each other. Um, uh, I really like the way that you talk about that. It, it certainly resonates with my experience. I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on on how you've seen that play out. Yeah, you can um, you can kind of witness it. Um, I you know if you go on on Twitter, which I refuse to call X, but um, you can kind <laughs> of um, you can actually see the separate conversations happening in real time, depending on kind of who you follow and who's responding to those conversations. You can see that there are people who are interested in land use policy, in zoning, in housing development. You know, a lot of them are associated with things like the Yes in My Backyard movement, and they're talking about housing in one set of terms. And but then you go and you follow people who analyze the financial markets and they're looking at the housing market in the sense of um, what is happening with housing as an asset class. And they like, it's literally like they're speaking different languages. It's these people aren't in conversation with each other. Like they're literally not in each other's replies, but they're also, it's different metrics. It's different assumptions about like what even is quote, quote unquote, the housing market. Um, Are we talking about um, housing as a financial product, mortgages and, you know, their secondary, their derivatives as a financial product. Are we talking about the homes that people live in and the rents that they pay? And um, it's, it's a really, it's a really funny divide. And that divide, you know, the stage was set for that um, through the policy decisions made in the 20th century to create a, a mass market in federally supported, federally insured 
long-term mortgages um, and to make that the foundation of how we're going to house people in this country. And what we did was we created a system where um, increasingly housing was the foundation of the financial system. Um, it was also the foundation of a bunch of other things. It became the foundation of local government's ability to fund their own operations. Um, so many things are riding on housing prices going up and up and up. Um, yeah. And if you talk to someone in that finance world, what is a housing crisis? A housing crisis is 2008. A housing crisis is when housing prices crash and it brings the economy with it. Um, and fears of a housing crisis mean, well, we're afraid that building is going to slow down and prices are going to slump and rents are going to slump and it's going to have all these cascading effects on the financial system. Um, if you go talk to a bunch of YIMBYs in San Francisco, what is a housing crisis? Well, duh, a housing crisis when people can't pay their rent. Um, there is a really fundamental tension that is like deeply ingrained in our society because we expect housing to do two, two contradictory things. We expect it to be a reliable, secure source of shelter for everyone who needs shelter, which is everyone. We also expect it to be this sort of indefinitely appreciating financial asset. Um, not necessarily like your home, though often your home, but more broadly, the housing market as a whole um, needs to go up and up and up or things break. Um, that is the fundamental, you know, the book is titled Escaping the Housing Trap. That is fundamentally what the housing trap is. It is this contradiction that we haven't grappled with that a whole bunch of us need housing prices to fall and a whole bunch of us are also going to suffer if housing prices fall. Yeah. How have you, I'm just curious, how have you been able to talk to people in your own community or at the local level? Do you engage, or especially, you know, for the dozen or so years you lived in Sarasota, did you engage with like housing activists or to try to uh, people who are trying to shape housing, local housing policy, and 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 kind of talk about uh, this perspective that you bring about uh, the housing trap and and the the different perspectives and motivations involved. I did. You know, I had the chance in Sarasota to to talk with a wide variety of people, from kind of community and neighborhood activists to local elected officials, chamber of commerce types. Um, I can't say I was super successful at influencing the, the conversation there. Um, I would try to plant seeds when I talk to people because I think that there's a lot of lack of understanding of even the contours of the issue. Like, um, I guess I'd tell you two stories here kind of related to that, and I'll try not to ramble. Um, when I was in planning school, I had to do a summer internship, and I did mine. Um, I went to grad school up in Minneapolis, but then I went back to Sarasota where my wife lived for the summer, and I did my internship. Um, in the county planning department. Um, I think at this point, it's been far enough, you know, it's been enough years that I can say this and I don't have to worry about um, who I might be offending by saying this. But um, <laughs> they tasked me as part of my planning internship with doing some kind of internal research, internal white papers, basically, on best practices for promoting affordable housing. Because by 2016, they understood Florida's growing really fast. We have a housing crisis. We don't have enough housing. Rents are skyrocketing. Um, but the prevailing thinking was so undeveloped about like even the terms of the conversation. So like I'm, I'm trying to put together this research on, um, you know, what, what levers do we have as the local government, as the county government to promote affordable housing? And I'm thinking of it in terms of how do we promote housing affordability, you know, get supply and demand 
aligned, remove zoning related obstacles to the production of more inexpensive housing, the production of housing where, where there's high demand. Um, and then there's also this conversation about sources of subsidy and how do we get purpose built affordable housing built. And that's all well and good. I went into one meeting where I'm supposed to like briefly summarize some of these results. And I realized sitting at this table, like 20 minutes in, it kind of dawns on me and a couple of the other planners that half the people at this table think that we're there to talk about homelessness. Mm. And they're, they're baffled by everything coming out of my mouth and out of the, you know, the other planners mouths because we're talking about zoning and they're like, um, but you know, we, we, what we really want to talk about is we've got this handful of vacant lots that the County owns. And can we partner with any of the providers who salvation army or habitat or like, and like all of a sudden it's kind of like, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about affordable housing. We're not talking about homelessness. And they're like, I thought they were the same. Like people mm -hmm. are really way more, if you're immersed in, kind of urbanist debates or just thinking about these issues, like the average person, including the average local policymaker is way closer to square one than you think they are. Um, yeah. So I saw that in Florida that like the, everybody who was elected to office there had this sense that, well, we got to do something about affordable housing. And they didn't have the slightest clue how to think holistically about housing affordability as an issue in their community. Like, Literally, it was like, who can we, who can we partner with to get a small amount of subsidy delivered to one nonprofit that's going to build a few homes? Um, yeah. No sense of the scale of the problem, or really, you know, the problem as a basic issue of what do we allow the market to build? Um, and when you that that conversation has grown, and you know, Sarasota is, I think it's behind the curve, but I think they are tackling some of these broader questions of like. What does it say in our zoning code and how does that affect what gets built and what built and what can't get built? Um, there's still this mentality that's really, really ingrained. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying about kind of that 1970s through 1990s, that defensive mentality of cities are, you know, we, we've got suburban flight and urban neighborhoods have suffered decline and they've suffered stagnation. And the, the thing we need to do is hold the line and protect them. We're not even worried about overwhelming demand. We can't even conceive of that. So I, I sat in this meeting once I was asked to come by the president of my neighborhood association and it was a handful of neighborhood advocates and then a local elected official and a couple city staff. And we're talking about missing middle housing because they were considering a zoning code change to allow a modest amount of, you know, what's called the missing middle, essentially in some neighborhoods in Sarasota where only single family homes were allowed to be built. They were going to allow up to four units on a residential lot. Um, and the question is, you know, how broad will this be and what will the parameters of it be? And I'm listening to these people who work for the city and they're saying, well, I'm just concerned that this needs to be tightly, tightly regulated to prevent abuses. So, you know, what if, what if people build multiple units and then they Airbnb them? Well, we got to make sure we have provisions that they can't turn them into short-term rentals. And, you know, what if, what if someone builds a fourplex and, you know, there are loud parties there and it's a nuisance to the neighbors. So, okay, we got to have special um, provisions to, you know, maybe there's more landscaping screening or a bigger setback or something, but we got to make sure it won't be a nuisance to the neighbors. And, well, you know, the goal of this is to provide more housing for our downtown workforce and our restaurants and stores. And, but what if the people who are living in this housing, what if they're vacationing snowbirds? What if they're not our workforce? Well, can we put a provision into the lease? You know, if you want to build multiple units on this lot, maybe you should be required to put a provision into the lease 
that the person living there must be employed in downtown Sarasota. Like <laughs> these were literally the things being thrown out in this conversation. <clears throat> it needs to be tightly, tightly regulated to make sure it does exactly what we think it should do. And, um, you know, I pointed out, and I think it largely fell on deaf ears. Like we, do we say any of this stuff about new single family houses? Well, no, we don't. It's only this prospect of something that is a change in the existing pattern, you know, God forbid. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing that happened in this conversation was it kind of reached a natural lull and people are just sort of shooting the breeze for a while. And it's mostly a bunch of like neighborhood association presidents in Sarasota who are people in their sixties and seventies. Um, they've moved down to enjoy the Florida sunshine and they're all from somewhere else. Everyone in Florida is from somewhere pretty much. <laughs> um, and the gentleman to my left starts talking about his childhood in fall river, Massachusetts. And he, you know, lived on this wonderful street and it was full of triple decker houses um, where you've got the family that owns it is probably living in one of the units and they have a couple tenants. And there was this restaurant on the ground floor of an apartment building on the corner and he used to love it. And this idyllic picture of just kind of traditional missing middle urbanism and other people chimed in and they had similar childhood experiences. Um, and the person who kept saying tightly, tightly regulated chimes into the conversation and turns out that one of her family members, I, I don't know, I don't remember if it was father or grandfather, but had owned a triple decker in Massachusetts. Hmm. And it had been a stepping stone into building some wealth and joining the middle class and being homeowners in an affordable way. Um, had nothing but fond things to say about this. And so they all have these really positive experiences with real missing middle housing in the real world. And then the conversation goes back to the topic at hand and immediately a switch flips and it's Anyway, yeah, this is all great. I love this stuff. I think we should allow the missing middle. I just think it needs to be tightly, tightly regulated. <laughs> so there's this huge disconnect. There's this huge sort of loss aversion that people have. Um, and this disconnect between like the stuff we're talking about as urbanists, the kind of things that have been illegal for a long time in most places that we're talking about allowing again, they're not alien to Americans. People have been to places that have this development pattern. They've seen it and they largely have positive impressions of it. Um, and the question is, how do you, how do you get past that wall with people? Um, when I would talk with people in Sarasota, I would always point out like, cause there were a lot of similar fears about an ordinance to allow backyard accessory dwelling units. And I would point out that the the one neighborhood in Sarasota that has a lot of existing accessory dwelling units, it was built in the 1920s and thirties. Um, it is one of the wealthiest, one of the nicest, one of the like universally thought most like charming, successful neighborhoods in Sarasota. Everybody loves this place. Everybody is simultaneously terrified of what could go wrong if we allowed more <laughs> places like it to be built today. Yeah, we can't have any of that. It's clearly <laughs> way too desirable. Uh, I, I think that's a great segue into this other piece, uh, another piece here that really caught my eye in your introduction where you talked a little bit about James C. Scott's book, uh, Seeing Like a State, uh, and his ideology of high modernism. Uh, and so I'll just a couple of quick sentences on that where he said, high modernism consists of a strong belief in the scientific perfectibility of society. The high modernist seeks to render complex social phenomena discrete, legible, and measurable in order to prescribe solutions through rational scientific management. Uh, and then later how uh, you said, we believed we could devise permanent solutions to problems that he had bedeviled city dwellers uh, forever. 
So, I mean, I love that. It kind of speaks to something that I've thought a lot about as well. And one of the more of all the fascinating changes that we made in the 20th century, really one of the least talked about is just exactly this that you highlighted there was this uh, adoption of uh, that everything in society could be um, uh, categorized and scientifically managed uh, and uh, that that was the right approach. But I think what you point out here is that it also had tons of consequences. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, the, in the more historical portion of the book, um, you know, I got to do a lot of research on the origins of American zoning for this book. And um, you really Lucky see you. that underlying ideology in the way people talk about it, that, um, you know, the earliest attempts at, at residential zoning came from a really good place. They largely came from progressive public health reforms in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, people looking at squalid conditions in tenements and like, Um, Mm -hmm. people are getting sick. These buildings are catching on fire. What can we do? Um, and so there are some really obvious reforms that take shape that, okay, we're going to require a little more space between buildings. So light and air can get in. We're going to require firewalls. Um, but then you very quickly see that morph into a tool that can be used not for sort of urgent public health and safety needs, but for, um, either to address circumstances that, Um, frankly, kind of really elitist reformers deem morally objectionable. Um, You see see anti-immigrant sentiment play into it. You see a lot of things, but you see this notion that, well, now that we have this tool of we can regulate the form and the arrangement of buildings in the city, hey, this is great. We can designate whole neighborhoods where apartment houses aren't allowed because we think that apartment houses are going to be a a deleterious impact on... um, into the moral well-being of the neighborhood on the the children who are going to play with God knows who. Um, what it, what were they described as in the Euclid decision? A like mere parasites? parasite. Yeah. Um, take yeah. advantage of the. I, I can't I can't quote the whole thing from memory, but yeah, take yeah. advantage of the pleasant residential character of the neighborhood, uh, but degrade that yeah. character at the same time. You can find tons of quotes like that, and you can find it from the same reformist figures who were involved in sort of the anti-tenement struggle. So it's really easy, I think, to moralize about figures of the past and to judge them by what we know in the present. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that right now. And I, I do try to be disciplined about not doing that, that you have to understand that these people thought they were doing good and they were products mm-hmm. of their time. Um, and that in some ways they were doing good, but what you see is that these regulatory tools, you know, whether the intentions were good to begin with or not, they've metastasized into, um, you know, this notion that now we're going to we're going to order the entire urban landscape and we're going to strictly separate uses from each other. The residential zone over here and the the apartment, the higher density apartment zone over here and the commercial over here. Um, and it becomes this thing that's less about, you know, well, we can really articulate the the urgent public purpose here, the urgent health and safety issue and more about, well, of course we should do this. Of course we should diligently plan every aspect of the city to ensure that it's harmonious and works well. And, um, and so it gets put to all sorts of purposes where each one in isolation might make sense. The rationale for building setback requirements might make sense in isolation. The rationale for parking mandates, you know, especially at a certain time in history might've made sense in isolation. There's often like a very concrete problem that is that, that, that the planners of the, t- the day are trying to address you lump all of it together and now we've got this system that we've inherited that has just become this multi-headed hydra 
Um, the zoning chapter of the book starts with an anecdote about Somerville, Massachusetts, which um, I'm indebted to Daniel K. Hertz, who's a, a housing scholar um, for this. But mm -hmm. um, the illegal city of Somerville was a blog post that Hertz initially wrote back in 2015 based on a study that Somerville's own planning department did where they found that um, in, a, in a city of 80,000 people, there were only 22 conforming lots. Um, <laughs> there were only 22 lots in the entire city of Somerville where what was standing on that lot, if it burned down today, could be you could get a permit to rebuild it tomorrow. Yeah. Like, that's insane. And nobody yeah. who initially contributed to the spread of zoning, nobody foresaw that outcome. Um, yeah. But we have a yeah, broken think, paradigm. Yeah, and I think most, you know, lay people especially are have no idea uh, how how crazy that's gotten and uh, you know I I think the house that I live in now uh, is actually a non-conforming lot uh, for the zone, zoning that we live in and it's it, it, it's pretty amazing uh, how that has metastasized so much I wonder um, and I also I do appreciate what you're talking about I, I do feel like sometimes it's easy to cast aspersions on prior generations. I mean, I, I think if you went back in time, you would find that it was often many, most of the smartest and most idealistic people of those generations who were really doing what they felt was the right thing to do to make better places mm -hmm. uh, and, and have a better society. And uh, we have a hundred years of hindsight now to look at those things. And it's, so we have a lot uh, of easier way to look at what, what's worked and and what hasn't, but uh, I really do think that uh, a lot of it had good intentions behind it that that we don't talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I, I want to hit on uh, while I have you is, you know, now that you're back in um, Minnesota and you left Florida, which is a very high growth state, and uh, I'm not sure how fast growth uh, Sarasota and that region is in particular compared to other parts of Florida, uh, but. Um, how do you perceive these issues, especially some of the housing um, issues being different in really fast growth places uh, like the Sun Belt versus, you know, here in the Midwest, Kansas City and Minneapolis are both growing metropolitan areas, but they grow very modestly. Uh, although I think the Twin Cities probably grows faster than most people realize, but um, they're still by by comparisons of Sun Belt cities, they're slower growing. Yeah. Um <clears throat> The issues, um, you know, of people struggling to to afford rent or to find a home in the kind of place they want. I mean, those exist in both kinds of places. Um, I do think there are some really key kind of contextual differences, you know, in the the Sun Belt. Like, I mean, Sarasota, that region is home to like two of the three fastest growing master planned communities in the U.S. Um, mm. Number one is the Villages, which is the 55 plus um yeah. like metro at this point outside sure. of orlando yeah. but then two and three are both in greater sarasota so incredible amounts of in migration from other parts of the u.s um incredible rate of growth and so it gives you the opportunity to make big mistakes really quickly like um hmm. from my perspective i mean driving around on the suburban fringe of sarasota is kind of this horrifying scene of just like okay here's two more square miles that have been clear-cut that weren't clear-cut last month and they're going to be subdivisions and we can replicate our bad mistakes really, really quickly, but we can also, there's a whole bunch of energy that can go towards like making things better. Um, you know, you just like, when you're growing, there's, there are resources to be spread around. Um, I think there's a zero sum element to the conversation in slow or no growth places that becomes a little bit more challenging where like, um, <clears throat> 
you know, I'm, I would love to see a whole bunch of urban revitalization in St. Paul where I live now. Um, I can think of specific spots around the city that have just sort of languished for decades, you know, big giant vacant lots that were vacant when I was a little kid and are still vacant. Mm. And it's kind of like, when is somebody going to do something here? (laughs) And it's like, well, when are enough people going to move to St. Paul to make it economically viable for somebody to quote unquote, do something with all of this, this land. And I'm dying to see it happen. Um, And I think the, the kind of opportunities are, are different. You know, I, I was in, Charlotte for the Congress for New Urbanism, you know, along with the Strong Towns National Gathering last May. And in Charlotte, it's incredible. They've built this light rail line and at like three different stops on the one light rail line, there are entire like high density mixed use neighborhoods popping up out of full cloth. And it's just like, how on earth is there this much money going like, and nothing like that is going to happen here. And we kind of have to resign ourselves to like, we're not going to see these miraculous things just emerge from the dirt. Um, But what's possible in, you know, the a kind of environment where you don't have the cataclysmic money so much, you don't have um, the, you know, re- real estate isn't the same kind of like just omnipresent giant business as it is in somewhere like Florida or somewhere like North Carolina. What you have is opportunities for incremental developers who are resourceful and a little bit scrappy. And if, especially if local government can find the way to, support people who want to be the one to buy that vacant lot in their neighborhood and put up something cool on it. Um, Remove the barriers in the way of that person, help them connect with each other, learn from each other, access financing. Um, Cool things can happen from the bottom up um, in places where, you know, from a, from a 30,000 foot view, they're not growing or exploding in the same way. And that's something that, that I get really excited about. It's something that the last third of our book um, is really heavily devoted to. Um, Kevin, you're actually in the book. I don't know if you knew this. Um, I you, are, that. you are credited with um, the term swarm for, for talking <laughs> about, um, you know, ha- having a whole bunch of small scale developers building, you know, within existing neighborhoods, within the existing fabric of our cities, as opposed to the current large developer, large site led model of how mm-hmm. we build housing. Um but that's to the extent that we have a prescription for what needs to happen. That's at the core of it is we need to cultivate and enable and support the swarm of bottom up, you know, infill developers working at small scales, often people working with property they already own and live on or in the neighborhood where they live um, mm-hmm. to start to thicken up the places that we already have where we do need housing. Um, doing backyard cottages, doing vacant lot infill, doing small apartment buildings, mixed use projects. Um, And the places where we see that happening, where we see like some snowballing momentum with a community of people doing the small scale development work, it's not the San Francisco's of the world. Nobody can afford to do it there. It's not the big Sunbelt cities. It's not Sarasota. It's not Charlotte. It's not Nashville. Um, Those places are a little more mired in this like kind of suburban experiment mindset. Um, that's really, really hostile to anyone other than a big entrenched developer. Um, mm-hmm. Where we see it happening is it's in South Bend, Indiana, which we discuss a lot in the book. It's in Memphis, Tennessee. It's in these poorer places, these disinvested places where there's a huge amount of opportunity to bring them back. But it's going to happen through kind of scrappy people working, you know, working in the cracks and the seams of what's already there. 
Yeah. I, I was going to ask you, you know, I, it's always dangerous to uh, give kind of generic advice uh, in, uh, in a book or uh, on a podcast. Um, and, and I, I want people to buy the book, so we don't want to give away everything <laughs> here, but what else might you tease that, that you talk about in the book as potential avenues uh, for people to look at? Um, and is it, is, is it mostly focused like uh, at the local level or do you talk about like national um, changes as well? Um, I mean, the, I think the national aspect is there in talking about the housing finance system and the history of how it's developed. You know, a lot of the historical stuff meant to set the context. Um, I think we deliberately shy away from offering like federal policy prescriptions, um, you know, true to the bottom up emphasis of strong towns, um, what you're going to get out of this book. If you go in looking for the solution to the housing crisis, Mm -hmm. you're going to be disappointed. Um, in fact, our publisher wanted us to, um, to have the strong town solution to the housing crisis be the subtitle (laughs) of the book. And we fought them on it. We said, no, it's the strong town's response to the housing crisis. We don't have a solution for you, but we have avenues to pursue. And those avenues are local. They are, I think there's a lot that is within the power of local governments to, to jumpstart and to help snowball. And sometimes just to get out of the way of, of the paradigm shift that really needs to happen. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. I want people to buy the book. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not, much more than you want people to buy the book. I want people <laughs> to buy the book. I'm sure you do. Um, there, there's some stuff um, um, and some things that, that Chuck came up with that I was kind of blown away by. Like, I, it's never occurred to me that this is a, a policy tool we could use. But there's some really good there's some really good practical advice for local leaders, local developers, local governments in particular, um, to not be helpless, you know, at the hands of these overbearing market forces you know, the housing market, capital H, capital M, as this thing that just goes up and up and up forever. Um, but how can we get out of the clutches of that? And how can we enable bottom-up solutions to actually proliferate in our communities from people who are invested in our communities? That's great. That's great. Daniel, what else is next up for you? I presume you're going to keep writing. Uh, are you uh, are, are you going to become a small developer uh, at some point? Yeah. Uh, not out of the question. I will never say it's I, out of the question because small developers. I, ask, I try are to, I try to ask everybody um, that. And put, and small developers people. are kind of my heroes. I've got the bug, you know. I go, I, I'm out and about around the city. I'm walking. I'm riding my bike, and I'm constantly looking at some some derelict or vacant lot and saying, "Well, what could be there? Um, and who's <laughs> going to do it?" And like, I get excited about that. Um, I'm probably not becoming a small developer anytime soon. I don't know that I have the risk <laughs> tolerance or the the constitution for it. Um, definitely going to keep writing. Um, I write every week just about for strong towns and um, we'll see what else comes next, but I'm really excited to have, have finished this book and for the world to get to read it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'll certainly uh, buy it myself and uh, look forward to finding out where I am in the book. That's interesting to hear. So, uh, <laughs> always fascinating. So Daniel, as we wrap up, do you have a favorite messy city or messy neighborhood that you want to talk about? Oh man, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I ask it. That's why you ask it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I I got too many favorite um, messy places. You know, I um, the places that I go to is just my favorite kind of urban places are 
are often not particularly messy. They're just the, you know, the shining examples. I mean, like Savannah's historic district of um, just like, man, if we could just do this all day, every day, that would be great. Um, But I do appreciate um, messiness. I appreciate kind of ad hoc um, places where people are doing what they can with what they have. Um, um, Honestly, you see a lot of that outside the U S it's been, it's been a while since I've left the country and I feel like I'm due to find a chance to, to travel. I am fascinated by cities in, in the global South. I, I lived in Quito, Ecuador for oh, um, wow. a little less than a year when I was younger. And um, the tolerance for messiness there is like super cool. Like if you want to do something, you kind of go out and do it um, largely yeah. because like the state doesn't have the capacity to stand in your way, but mm-hmm. um, there is like an ad hoc transportation system in Quito that, I went my first two months that I lived there, I went looking fruitlessly over and over for like a system map where I could see all the bus routes and where they go. I finally realized that there wasn't one. Um, (laughs) There was no such thing because these are just private operators and they run a bus and they'd slap a bunch of signs on the front windshield of neighborhoods that that bus served and you paid a quarter and you got on and you kind of had to figure it out through trial and error. Um, But it was this incredibly adaptive system. Um, you could get anywhere once you figured out how to use these informal buses. Um, but same things like informal forms of like the, the lowest bar to entry development, you would see street vendors all over the place. Like that's the entry stage restaurant. You know, you set up a little shack in the yeah. park, a little shack, a little stand, and you sell like skewered meats in the park. And eventually you get a brick and mortar space and you like, I love that kind of thing. Um, there's an, an energy and an excitement that it's almost totally absent from North American cities. And... Yeah, actually, uh, I, I just read a, a really great um, article that uh, Chris Arnaud just uh, published, mm-hmm. uh, I think this week, uh, on on the very topic. And he even talked about Quito, Ecuador, and he was comparing the experience as a bus rider there versus being a bus rider in Los Angeles or <laughs> a lot of other American cities. And just completely echoed almost everything you just said. Yeah. Uh, I read that same article. True. It was great. I yeah. always love his writing. Yeah. He's a brilliant writer. Um, so, well, Daniel, thanks so much um, for, for all this. It's really great to catch up Thank and you. Uh, look forward to getting the book and uh, in engaging more and uh, talking about these issues. So totally. I will tell your, your listeners um, housingtrap.org um, is the one-stop shop. If you want to, um, you can pre-order the book from there. You can get links to places you can do it. You can also learn about hosting an event um, to talk about some of these issues. Terrific. So. Terrific. And and could also find you on the Strongtown site and on social media. Absolutely. All right. All right, Daniel. Thanks again. Thank Take you. care. Take care.